So welcome to Life of the School, episode six. Hello, everyone. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Acton Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. In this episode, I have a chat with Christine Brothers. Chris is the science department head at Falmouth High School in Falmouth, Massachusetts. She has taught a wide variety of life science courses, most recently uh, beginning an AP environmental science course at Falmouth High School. Chris has received many awards for her work in the classroom, including the Presidential Award for Excellence in Science Teaching, the Outstanding Biology Teacher Award, uh, from the National Association of Biology Teachers and the Amgen Science Teaching Excellence Award. Chris was also the winner of the Entomological Foundation's 2015 Presidential Prize in Secondary Education. In 2014, Chris participated in the Siemens Teachers as Researchers uh, STARS Fellowship Program at Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. She co-authored the 2010 journal article using Wabakia bacterial symbionts to teach inquiry-based Science, a high school laboratory series with Seth Bordenstein and others in the American Biology Teacher. Chris earned her BS in Environmental Science from Cornell University and her MS in Environmental Education from The Ohio State University. Welcome, Chris. Hi, Aaron. Hi, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. How are you? Good, good. So we're recording this. This is the, um, I, don't, it's, I know you were in your school and you had students in, so I imagine, are you, did you start school this week? Uh, no, we're actually starting after Labor Day, so we're just in getting set up and ready for students to come back. Okay, so this is going to be, I'm going to put this one out on Labor Day or the Sunday, that that Sunday, Monday, Labor Day weekend. I start school um, with lovely teacher meetings next week and then students in uh, Wednesday of next week. So this is our this is our, our back-to-school episode. Right. <laughs> Good. So, um, so I know you've been off uh, busy this summer. Hopefully we can get into some of that stuff that you've been busy uh, with. Um, so I'm just going to jump into my first question, which is I want to know, how did you become a science teacher? Well, actually, Aaron, you had asked me earlier what I did before I started teaching, and I worked at um, nature centers for about 10 years. And I was working at Mass Audubon, um, Wellfleet Bay Sanctuary here on Cape Cod. And um, kind of a funny thing, I went on vacation in May to the Galapagos Islands, um, this was like 21 years ago, and I was sitting in the Galapagos, and I was next to a cactus, and I was just enjoying this beautiful view, and I started thinking about um, what I did for work every day and how I would way rather live in the Galapagos, <laughs> even though Cape Cod is a pretty nice place to live. And I started thinking that um, most of my job was uh, adult education, and when I taught students... Um, we would have, uh, you know, a couple thousand kids every year come through the sanctuary, but we'd go out for like an hour or two on the trails, do some salt marsh, uh, beach activities with them. And what I felt was that uh, I um, saw a lot of kids, but I wasn't really sure that I was having an impact on any of those kids. And um, I started thinking that I really wanted to um, kind of have a career switch where I would um, have you know, a few students that I would have every, you know, for the full year that I would have every day that I could really make a difference in their lives, um, get to know them as individuals and not kind of a, you know, treadmill of thousands of kids coming through the sanctuary every year that, that I was on at that point. So um, 
that was kind of my epiphany sitting in the Galapagos and I came back and started applying to teaching jobs that year and now I've been in Falmouth for 22 years since then. Wow. Yeah, and I, 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 <laughs> those dangerous conversations with yourself. <laughs> right. So, you know, I was reading the the, the background um, and the reason I got to know you, I'm, I'm actually trying to remember the timeline. So, um, you know, uh, my colleague Brian Dempsey quite well because uh, yeah. you're in Massachusetts and everybody in Massachusetts knows Brian Dempsey really, really well. Um, it's like a... You know, I, I refer to him as my work husband because we spend so much time together um, and we, we run in different circles. But everyone seems to know Brian. He is the uh, Massachusetts Association of Biology Teacher President. So he, he talks to lots and lots of teachers um, all around the state. Um, so I'm trying to remember if I first met you when you came and visited our school one day uh, to sort of look at our some of our programs or if it was a case where we happened to be at a Wolbachia workshop where we were both presenting. No, um, I think there's some kind of Wolbachia function that we were both at, because I don't think I've ever actually been to your school. You haven't been up to AB? Okay. I don't think so. Okay, yeah, we've had a couple workshops, and, and I know lots of people have come through. So um, so I know that, and it may also have been at an MABT conference that I, I was first introduced. At an MABT conference, yeah. Yeah, so I, I felt like I was with Brian the first time I met you, and then I think the second time I saw you oh, was at one of those uh, Wabaki workshops, which was very interesting because I was actually presenting at workshops before I'd actually gone through them. Uh, <laughs> Because I uh, I had done them for, I had done the whole Wabaki series uh, with um, with Brian several times um, and I'm sort of the the biotech guy at my school so I was helping to troubleshoot a lot of those issues um, and then Brian was asked if he could come in and present something on it and he had a conflict so he's like yeah my colleague Aaron will go in and present <laughs> I was like yeah I, I haven't been through the official workshop so uh, I was kind of curious because that's sort of my opening with you is uh, how did you get connected with the the Wabakia project. Well, you know, um, at the time, Seth Bordenstein was at the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, and that's part of the Falmouth um, School District, Woods Hole is. So they offered that first Wolbachia workshop, I think it was in like 2005 or 2006. Um, and I went to that workshop and I thought, wow, this would be a great thing to do with students. Um, but at the time, we had exactly one micropipette, <laughs> and that was our some total of biotechnology equipment. We didn't even have an electrophoresis box. And um, so the next year I started working with um, Seth on the project. I went down and met with him and said, I'd really like to do this with kids, but I don't have any equipment at all. And there was, a, this is still in existence, actually, the BioTeach program that offers grants to uh, teachers. And so we sat down and kind of wrote, um, wrote up a proposal to them. And he really helped me with what do you need equipment-wise to make this happen? And uh, that was the start. So I got all the, the funding, I got all the equipment, and um, a year later started doing the project with kids. Yeah, and I think that's actually a very similar story to what Brian ended up doing. He went down to one of those workshops and then opened up and started looking for grants to build out our equipment and went through a very similar series. So, but you, you know, and I, t I mentioned it a little bit with your background um, going through all of those uh, different, um, you know, workshops you've done. You don't go to a workshop. You, so your personality doesn't seem to be like, oh, I just went to this professional development workshop and I'll go back to my school and I'll implement it and it'll be quiet. You seem to dive in pretty deep. You seem to, you seem to, to go until you get it done and get it to sort of meet your, your ideal in there. So, you know, after you went in that first time and then you followed up another year, um, you kept working at that year after year, uh, building it out, didn't you? 
Um, that's true. And actually, I think it was, I was really at a big advantage, I would say, having Seth right here in the district. And he was um, getting some NSF funding at the time. Um, and he just had a lot of opportunities for me to participate. Um, well, both Brian and I did the um, Envisionship program where we had the chance to actually go down and work at MBL. Brian worked at Clark University, I think, at the time mm -hmm. with the Mosquito Project. Um, so there was that opportunity open to us. And I guess I just kind of latched onto the Wabakia project. It was, you know, a brand new thing. There was only, at the time when I started it, there was only three schools in the country that um, were doing the project. We were kind of the guinea pigs for Seth to actually see how it worked with students because he'd only actually, um, you know, done the workshops for teachers. And as you know, it's kind of different when you launch it with 16 and 17 year olds than with adults. Um, so yeah, I mean, I did have the chance to to go to NSTA to present. Um, as I said, Brian and I did the envisionship. Then eventually, that kind of all um, rolled into the NABT uh, article in American Biology Teacher. Um, yeah, so I did. I really ran with the Obaki project, and I'm um, really happy to say that there's a lot of schools now that are involved in this project all across the country and. There's, as far as I know, there's not really a good, you know, estimate of numbers, but it's in the thousands of students at this point. Yeah. And if you've been paying attention uh, um, to any of the news this summer, particularly with the, the Zika outbreak, uh, yeah. Wabaki has been very hot in the news this, this summer. Um, right. I feel like my, my radar has always turned on to it a little bit because, you know, it's been something that I've been aware of for many, many years. But um, I just I was listening to an interview um uh, with uh, Ed Young, who did, uh, who wrote the book, um, I Contain Multitudes. I may have that uh, that title wrong, but something similar to that that just came out. And he's been doing the the tour, and he, he they asked him specifically what his favorite bacteria was, and he said it was Wolbachia. <laughs> um, so it, it was pretty amazing that you've got you know uh, popular uh, science uh, books now being written where the author, who's a journalist, is now identifying Wolbachia as their favorite bacteria. Um, <laughs> from that time when nobody knew what this was. Right, right. So, so the Wabakia, and, you know, I remember I was talking to somebody else about this, and they asked me why I like this project. And I said, you know, this is, this is one of those projects that connects, you know, some environmental collection, some classification, and then a lot of molecular. And I really get it at, the, at it from the molecular standpoint. Um, when you get into the classroom, what are some of your favorite, you know, subjects or areas that you like to teach? What are some of your favorite topics? Yeah, so my background actually is more ecology related than the molecular biology. And I think a little piece of that is because of my age, I hate to say, because when I was in college, the you know molecular biology was not really something undergraduates were doing that much of. <laughs> um, but so I would say any ecology or field-based kind of work I like doing with students. And when I taught AP Biology, um, probably my favorite, um, you know, topic in terms of the curriculum was the evolution unit, as you might guess from the fact that I went to the Galapagos. <laughs> it was actually part of my reasoning in going to the Galapagos. I was so interested in, um, you know, so interested in evolution. I'm like, you have to go to, you know, hotbed of where all that thought came from. So um, I would say those are probably my two favorite subjects, probably Any, anything related to ecology or evolution. And honestly, my least favorite stuff is anything related to anatomy, um, especially, I don't know, things like how does the kidney function? You know, that's just not my thing. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think you know you, you mentioned sort of the the age of it, and I, I was I was talking to somebody the other day that when I was in um, when I was in college, I actually worked in a lab, and one of the things I looked at was enzyme activity. Um, you know, when you look at enzyme activity back then, what I was doing is I was running a spectrophotometer to get indirect um, you know measures of of the products of an enzyme. Like I was looking at enzyme products using spectrophotometer readings, and this is now you know mid early mid 90s that I'm doing this work and I'm thinking about this I, I just did a, a lab internship a, a, you know a little more than a year ago I would have been running like westerns so I would have been using knockdowns and all that stuff oh, we didn't use any of that stuff so it was you know I was in a fairly fairly molecular lab doing fairly molecular techniques and I never really got much beyond using a spectrophotometer uh, to do indirect you know biochemical assays so it's it is very much a, a a change in the materials and how we learn things. Oh, completely. Because I would say when, um, you know, back in the day, we used to have a city lab bus come down to our school. And, uh, you know, we started off doing like hemoglobin electrophoresis. And for my AP bio students, I said, you know, I'd like to bump this up and do um, PCR with them. And at that time, I would say, you know, 15 years ago or so, uh, PCR was like, whoa, you're doing that with high school students? And um, now that's, you know, almost a workhorse kind of lab to do with high school students. And I've seen some of the things that I used to do with AP biology students down at like fourth, fifth grade level <laughs> teachers doing that with their kids. And I think, whoa, stop. We need to have something we can teach at high school. And I mean, who knows what we're going to be doing next with kids, really? Yeah, I, I've been seeing uh, some very interesting stuff coming through, um, particularly with the biotech stuff. One of the things that I've been working on this summer is I've been looking at um, how I might be able to use something like CRISPR um, <laughs> in in the upcoming years. So when you talk about differences, like that's how fast things are moving. Right. I wouldn't be surprised at all if high school students are doing that within a few years. And I mean, I've just that's just kind of started coming on my radar at this point. But um, I would. I suspect that one of the, you know, biotech ed companies will probably come up with some kind of kit that high school kids can start using in the not too far future. Yeah. Yeah. And I know several people who are working on that kind of thing, you know, working on a CRISPR style um, uh, activity uh, to work with their students, you know, either modeling or actual doing CRISPR. Right. So when I look at your career, I know that you spent time in the environmental education and then you shifted into the classroom and then you shifted to being a department head. And I know from doing a little reading that in Falmouth, most department heads are not classroom teachers, but you insisted on not giving up your classroom. That's right. So what has the transition from being a teacher to a department head been like? Um, so actually, when I became a department head, that was I think like 14 years ago, um, we were just nine through 12 and um, all the department heads still taught two classes a day. So um, yeah, I mean, I took on the administrative piece, but I had you know, essentially release time from the classroom. Um, rather, you know, regular classroom teachers have five classes as, as usual in most schools. And so I was just teaching the two sections of AP biology at that time. In fact, I, I had been teaching marine ecology before that, and I wanted to teach, continue teaching marine ecology, but the former department had said, no, you have to teach AP biology, so I did. <laughs> um, 
because the marine ecology is, you know, near and dear to my heart. But um, so that wasn't too much of a transition, I would say. But then we did a, a few years ago, um, all the department heads went seven through 12. And at that time, um, you know, they said, well, we don't want you to teach if you're going to be seven through 12. It's, you know, twice as many teachers, two different schools that you're working out of. And I said, yeah, I don't really want to give up the teaching. I want to keep that part. I think that it's really important that um, administrators still have that connection directly to kids. I mean, that's the whole reason we went into teaching to begin with. And I also feel uh, it's very easy for administrators to kind of lose touch with what teachers are going through on a day-to-day -day basis if they're not teaching themselves. So I had one year, um, the compromise was one year that I wasn't teaching and I was kind of miserable during that year, but um, it had been on my radar for many years to start an AP environmental science class here at school. So I took that um, year when I was strictly administrative and used it to um, develop my curriculum for the AP environmental science, which was really helpful to have that time. Um, and then two years ago, I started teaching the AP environmental science class. So we're now in the third year for that. So they, when they expanded the role uh, is when you had to give up the... Right, right. For just that one year. I mean, that was, uh, out of, out of, after a lot of meetings, that was kind of the compromise that we, we came to, um, you know, expand into the 712 for one year, see how the workload is. If you feel like you can still handle, you know, teaching a class, go ahead and do that. And I did have um, two sections of AP biology and I only have one section of AP environmental. So it is a reduction in teaching time, but that didn't really reduce my workload because I started a brand new class. So if I had kept teaching AP biology, you know, I mean, my curriculum is, you know, was in pretty good shape for that. And of course you're always adding new things, but it wasn't like I had to, you know, create a course from scratch, which I basically had to do for the AP environmental. But I really, um, I mean, I really like the fact that I'm teaching the apes class now because it's kind of more in line with uh, my own personal um, background. And I also feel it's really, really relevant to kids. I mean, if you look in the newspaper on any given day, and I, I actually did this for about a month, um, three years ago, any given day that you look in the newspaper or, um, you know, you see a minimum three, four articles that have to do something with the environment. And all, almost every day there's something related to climate change. <laughs> So, you know, this, these are things that are really going to be impacting kids' lives, and I think it's really critical that we're teaching them some of this information. Also, the department head has so many responsibilities in Massachusetts. I would think that the workload probably went up from that job, not just because you went to two schools, but also because the demands went up. Uh, yeah, pretty much, because right about at that same time was when Massachusetts went to the new teacher evaluation system, and... I'm sure, you know, you've been on the other end of that evaluation system. So, you know, it's a lot more work for the teachers. It's a lot more work for department heads and administrators as well. Yeah, it's a massive amount of observations and paperwork. Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> and evidence collection and smart goals and ed plans and yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it's not something. Yeah, it's not something I would envy you to do. <laughs> Actually, it's really fun to go in and watch other people teach and you get, you know, good ideas from that. You see different ways that people, you know, are differentiating or dealing with some, you know, issues that arise in the classroom. And so I think to some extent, you know, that also helps my teaching. And, you know, it's also, um, I think, interesting um, 
to be able to share with other teachers in the department what's going on 7 through 12 a little bit more. Mm. You know, teachers are often very isolated in their room and they don't really know what's going on, you know, in other grade levels or other buildings. So um, part of the reason we went to this 7 through 12 model is so we can have that vertical, you know, alignment with what's going on at the different grade levels. And that's kind of a challenge. And um, I suspect this happens at other schools too. You know, some teachers at sixth grade are doing the same lesson then an eighth grade teacher and then a 10th grade teacher. And you're okay. And teachers say, we don't have time to, you know, get our whole curriculum taught. And now here we're kind of repeating things that kids have already done before. So the chance to kind of, you know, correct some of those things so we can be a little more efficient. And so the kids have a consistent experience, but also they're not, you know, oh, we did this in fifth grade. You know, you hear that from kids sometimes. Yeah. I also think the uniforming uh, some of the language and expectations for students might be really helpful. Oh, absolutely. And some of the ways that we uh, approach instruction. And then the kids, uh, like, for example, we have a Socrat we do a lot of Socratic seminars in our district. And this is something that started with an English department, but now is, you know, almost every department and every grade level. So now when you say the kids are going to do a Socratic seminar on, you know, genetically modified foods, um, you know, they run the show because they know how to do it. Yeah. And I, th I think that one of the things as we move into the next gen science standards, when we start looking at those science practices, I think that, you know, alignment from the beginning all the way up is going to be huge, you know, super important. Absolutely. So, yeah, I think you're going to be, you're a little, a little ahead of the game. I hope so. <laughs> We're working on it. So I know that you've, uh, you have a, a big environmental background and that extends outside the classroom. So when you're not teaching, what do you like to do? <laughs> well, most summers I do some professional development and usually that involves some kind of research or travel or, cor you know, coursework for teachers. And um, I guess uh, most um, directly, I would say last summer, um, I did a, an Earthwatch project in Churchill, Manitoba. Oh. So if you're not familiar with Earthwatch, it's a place where um, people, not just teachers, but anybody can um, sign up to help scientists on their research projects, and they have projects all over the world. And, um, you know, you pay for this, so it's kind of like uh, you're paying to volunteer, but it covers your room and your board. You put your own travel. Um, and you just have uh, a completely different experience of visiting someplace than a tourist would have going to that same location. So last year, um, as I mentioned, I was working on a project in Churchill, Manitoba, which is right on Hudson Bay. And uh, the project was looking at um, the ecology, get this, the ecology of vernal pools, which is something I teach my students here. That's the other big project I've been involved with for the last couple of years besides Wolbachia. And so we were doing you know, water quality testing in about um, 25 different um, pools in the in the Arctic, um, boreal pools, and also monitoring the amphibian populations in those pools. Um, and the idea of this is to try to lay the groundwork for, uh, with climate change, what's going to happen to these pools. It changes, of course, the whole um, you know hydrography of the area, and also what will happen to the amphibian populations uh, in that area as well. Basically, you know, with warmer temperatures, the pools are drying up, and they have a shorter uh, reproductive period for the amphibians. Um, 
We're also doing a lot of uh, sampling of aquatic invertebrates, which is just a lot of, you know, dip netting. So he's like out there like a third grader again, tromping around in the pond, collecting insects and, you know, trying to figure out what you've, what you've caught. So that was a really interesting project, but I would say that the most interesting thing about it is that um, there were polar bears in the area where we were working. So the whole time we were out in the field, we had to be um, under guard by um, three people who were trained as polar bear guards with uh, rifles in case, you know, a bear came too close. Um, we did see uh, <clears throat> a total of 11 bears during the week, and two or three of which were close enough that we needed to uh, leave our research site, go off and do something else, and then come back until the bears had moved on because Obviously, you don't want to have any researchers have an encounter with a polar bear. Yeah, and I, I know you have a big passion for um, bird watching as well. Oh, yes. Yep. So do you, yeah, do you do like traveling and vacation associated with that? Um, this summer, actually, I spent three weeks in Utah, um, about two and a half weeks in Utah, Nevada, and Arizona. And um, I was just birding with a friend and actually with Mass Audubon and then with, uh, with a friend who's also a birder. And um, the, the goal of this trip was to see a California condor in the Grand Canyon. And after nine hours of looking for one, we finally saw two. So um, mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was mentioning um, in my last podcast that I did uh, Project Feeder Watch. Uh, with my, my alternative program because a couple winters ago and uh, it was amazing how after just a few weeks they became really able to differentiate them and then uh, when I moved on to evolution and we started talking about Darwin's finches they had such a different perspective <laughs> on his work <So>. right <laughs> they start paying attention to birds a little bit more <laughs> yeah little things all right. So as we get into this school year, as I said, we're gonna. This will come out right before you start. What are you most looking for uh, forward to in this upcoming school year? Hmm. Well, I would say with my AP Environmental Science class, you know, this is now the third year that I that I'll be teaching the class, and one of the things that I'm trying to work on is opening up the inquiry a little more in my class. And I would say. You know, the first year I taught the course, I was, you know, in kind of that first year teacher survivor mode. Um, just wanted to make sure that I had, um, you know, lessons every day for kids. And I had um, a lot of labs that, you know, illustrate a purpose, but they're a little bit cook, you know, cookbook sort of thing. And um, so what I'm working on, started working on last year and hope to continue this year is to make those uh, more student-driven and a little bit more open-ended. Um, haven't quite figured out how I'm going to make that happen yet, but I want the kids to do more, like, authentic uh, research and not just, um, you know, a lab from Carolina Awards or someplace like that. Yeah. I found that the AP model of a baseline lab and then a follow-up lab has been super helpful. Yeah, that in the AP biology, so that was happening like right around the time that I switched teaching this, this new class. But yeah, you give the kids, uh, you know, a day's experience with playing around with, you know, a procedure that's kind of laid out for them. And then the next day they kind of run with, all right, we kind of have the basics of what we can do here. And now what can we 
make happen from this point? You know, what variables can we change or, you know, what new question can we ask based on what we did yesterday? Yeah, and that's that's been the model. And once I started doing that with AP, I found that I now use that in all my classes. Yeah, and I think that's kind of where I am now with the AP environmental. I'm like, okay, I've seen, you know, I've done a bunch of the labs. I kind of have an idea of how they can, they can work, and now I can open them up a bit more for the kids. And I would say that um, the AP environmental science doesn't have a, you know, a set of 12, 14 required labs the way the AP bio um, course does. In fact, they don't really even have, I mean, there's not really any suggestions really about labs. I mean, there's some on their, their website and there's some that seem to be kind of standard that most teachers do some variation on, but it's not, um, it's not as uh, detailed or specified, I would say, as the AP biology curriculum. And I think um, one of the really nice things about the APES curriculum also is that you can really tailor make it to your own particular environment. Because if you're teaching this course in Texas, I mean, I, I have met some AP environmental science teachers from Texas. Um, it's a completely different, uh, you know, environment that they're teaching in. So uh, it needs to be, you know, take advantage of your own environment and tailor make it. Um, so for example, we do a lot of, um, you know, wetlands, um, water quality monitoring, fish tagging, um, you know, salt marsh kind of work that is not going to happen for somebody in Texas. Um, and, you know, for my students, uh, the whole idea of like cattle ranching and ranging and water management, that, you know, that's huge in the Western United States and they have no clue about it here in Cape Cod. You know, we don't have cattle ranches on Cape Cod. All right. So before we get to our picks, do you have any questions for me? Uh, yeah. What are you What are you doing next? So uh, this upcoming year, I am looking at starting rolling in those next gen science standards, uh, particularly when it comes into the science practices. Um, so. In, I've mentioned this before in other podcasts, Massachusetts just adopted the next-gen science standards. And so um, I'm really starting to work with those documents um, because I'm a little concerned about what the state assessment's going to look like in a couple of years. Um, so my first, my first foray into that is I use my alternative program a little bit as my guinea pigs, but I've designed a series of labs using uh, termite behavior. Are you familiar with the termite behavior lab? Uh, no, I don't think so. So there's this kind of standard termite behavior lab where you make circles or shapes with Bic pens, and then you dump worker termites on uh, filter paper that you've drawn those shapes on, and then the termites follow them. Follow <laughs> the inclines? Yeah, they follow the incline. So it's an interesting example of a phenomena that a lot of stuff happens with it. So I've got a series of activities to use that to highlight. I think I have like six of the practices that really highlight this. And so I'm going to have my students see this and then work through that. And then I'm going to do a, an artificial selection lab with Drosophila um, and using what's called cold coma recovery time, uh -huh. where the flies that wake up first uh, have the fastest recovery and the ones that wake up last have the slow recovery. 
So I'm going to make male and female populations have the kids select the early wake-ups, late wake-ups, and see if we can do artificial selection over a couple of generations and see a shift. And so this is going to teach a lot of the evolution concepts, but I'm also going to use that to try to um, highlight those same practices. And so that's what I've got sort of as my new thing to do in the fall uh, to see how those work. I also have in the back of my mind that I would like to get a genetically modified fly uh, that either has a really uh, slow recovery time or a very fast recovery time, and then talk to the students about the difference between artificial selection and then genetically modified flies. And then open up that whole discussion about modifying organisms. Yeah, very interesting because, you know, that's kind of the central debate over all GMOs is how different is going in and manipulating the DNA of these organisms directly mm-hmm. compared to manipulating that DNA through artificial selection, which, of course, people have been doing for thousands of years. And where you come out on that whole spectrum of it's okay to artificially select, but it's not okay to go in there and manipulate their DNA directly. Yeah, and I think this is where CRISPR is kind of unique because CRISPR is not taking genes from, say, a jellyfish or some bacteria and putting it in. It could be, but it has more to do with being that directed mutagenesis. And that's a little different. Yeah, although I have to say that actually taking that... that, um glow lab with the jellyfish gene, putting it into the bacteria and having the bacteria glow. I mean, that's always been one of my favorite labs because I just think it's so cool, so cool that we have that technology to do that. Um, and it's, you know, exciting for the kids when, hey, it worked, and the, here's our bacteria, and it's actually glowing. So the whole, um, you know, and obviously that's, you know, kind of a fun thing for kids to do, but as you know, that whole glow has huge uh, medical applications as well, so just to have the kids exposed to that, you know, to that piece of it. Um, in the AP Environmental Science curriculum, we do discuss a little bit of uh, genetically modified organisms, specifically in terms of agriculture and food supply. And um, so I do have my students test foods to see if they are genetically modified. And, I mean, you can almost not even get anything at the grocery store that, that isn't genetically modified these days. You know, I mean, every everything that contains corn or soybean essentially has been, uh, it's a GMO food. And um, as I mentioned, we do those Socratic seminars. We also do a Socratic seminar around um, the golden rice issue and whether, you know, whether countries want to accept using golden rice in their food supply or not. Yeah, we do that same we do that same lab, the GM lab with our honors bio students, and um, we get okay data, uh, but we I feel like we've we've fallen a little bit short on the discussion piece. So we play around with that each year. I'm hopeful that we'll get into a little bit more of the ethical discussions in the years to come. Um, in my case. Uh, the GMO lab and the AP environmental science that reflects my biology background because <laughs> I know you know most AP environmental science teachers probably don't do a do that particular lab but you know um, when I gave up teaching AP biology I'm like okay but I still like doing those molecular biology related things and 
this is kind of my way of carrying forward the biology, you know, into the AP uh, environmental science curriculum as well. All right. So let's move to the end. And um, I asked if you had a pick for the week, any interesting things that have grabbed your attention recently? Um, yeah. So because I went to Utah this summer, I um, spent some time going to Hoover Dam and Lake Mead. And uh, just coincidentally, before I um, went to Utah, there was an article in the New York Times about the potential for decommissioning um, the Glen Canyon Dam, which forms uh, Lake Powell. And so this is an area of big discussion right now. Um, and there's been a number of articles, including one in the National Geographic that um, I picked up over the summer. And so um, that was just, you know, an article that I've, that I've read recently that really kind of sparked my interest that this whole question about dams and their impacts on the environment is uh, a big part of our curriculum. And so I'm working on right now developing some kind of lesson around that whole piece that would be um, uh, the format of a structured academic controversy. And so um, working up an inquiry-based lab and the discussion piece to go along with that. And I guess if you want something that's kind of more a uh, you know science teachery sort of thing, um, two books that I'm looking at right now um, reading actually this week. One is called Differentiated Science Inquiry, and the other um, is called Lecture Free Learning. And both of these are books that I got from NSTA over the summer. Um, and especially the Lecture Free Learning one, I've, or Lecture Free Teaching, I think it is. Um, haven't gotten all the way through that, but it's something that I'm trying to, you know, make my curriculum more student-centered, less, you know, less work for me, more work for the students. Um, you think that, but actually, you know, it's a fair amount more work to get it more student-centered. But that's eventually a direction I'd like, you know, still, still always trying to go. Um, and so, I, having looked through both of these books, I, those are ones that I would recommend for science teachers specifically. Yeah, I've been. It's it's funny when I go through my old notes. Um, I've been doing some cleanup this summer, and if you find note packets of mine from seven, eight years ago. It was just so much content, uh, so you know, so much directed instruction, and now it's a picture and a series of questions. <laughs> and so I've moved very Socratic, uh, and I think if you went through the notes year in year out, you'd see how they shifted. Um, but it seems like it's accelerating the last couple of years. Um, so I mean, there's a lot of tools, tools in there. So going the opposite direction, um, <laughs> away from sort of classic teaching, uh, my pick is actually a database of standard test questions. Oh, yes. I saw that in your email, and I thought, hmm, that's kind of funny. Yeah, it's it's called problematic. And so, you know, I'm not – I've had a lot of discussions with people about multiple-choice questions and multiple-choice tests over the years. And – I am just not somebody who's willing to say, you know, multiple choice questions are the devil. They're, they're, you know, it's all about how you implement them. So what I find is I do lots and lots of quizzing. In fact, as I've gone away from direct instruction, I give more and more um, opportunities for students to try questions in class or through homework, that sort of thing. 
Uh, but sometimes it's hard to come up with, you know, 15 different questions about, you know, macromolecules. Um, and so this is a big database of a lot of standardized test questions that are used in state assessments all around the country. And you can go in and make little mini quizzes from this database. Um, there is a premium uh, version of it, in which case you can actually edit the questions. But there's a free version where you can just see the questions. And I use these a lot of times if I need to make a, a short 10 question quiz. Um, again, something that is more just a check-in, not necessarily something that's going to be high stakes. Uh, I love this database. Um, it also gives me some brainstorming ideas because um, they'll have images or they'll have a variety of different questions. Um, so I use it a lot in my um, early development of assessments and then to come up with a lot of check-in stuff. So if you're not familiar with Problematic, uh, it's, it's a nice little resource. It's really good for introductory courses. I don't really use it for AP, but I use it in my first year bio classes a lot. Do you think it would be helpful, um, I'm assuming, for like MCAS preparation kind of? Absolutely. I guess, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 and that's who I predominantly use it for. Um, I use it with my alternative program kids. So does it have different grade levels as well? Uh, yeah, there, there's some uh, elementary and middle stuff. Um, I am most familiar with the high school assessment stuff. Uh, there's also math. Um, there's a variety of different databases within this. So it's a neat little resource. So is, is Brian going to put that in the alert? Uh, I don't know. I'll have, to, I'll, I'll have to ask him. Under his good resources to follow up on? <laughs> yeah, I've started creating my own website. <laughs> yeah, I give, I give Brian a hard time about MABT's uh, terrible presence on the web. I know. That's something we've struggled with for years, and I don't really know why we struggle with it so much. But, you know, I do know why. It's because we're all full-time teachers, and we don't have the time to do it. <laughs> yeah, what ends up happening is I pick on Brian for it, and I give him a harder time, and I give him a harder time, and then he tells me, why don't you come in and do something about it? And then I, st <laughs> and then I stop complaining because I don't... <laughs> But one of these years, I'm gonna I'm gonna come in and say, all right, I gotta fix this. So you know, the thing with the website, I mean, I just developed one for my class this year, and the thing for the website uh, for my new class this year, um, it's not so much setting it up to begin with; it's maintaining it, you know, and making sure that you keep it current and up to date. And that's that's the piece I think that we're kind of missing because we have, you know, over the years we've set up various things and and then. You know, it's kind of falling apart because there isn't follow through on it. And, that, you know, that's just a matter of time, having the time to keep up with it. Yeah, you need somebody who's dedicated to do it. All right. So thank you so much, Chris. You're very welcome. It was interesting to talk with you this morning. Yeah, it was a great conversation. All right. So let me give my little uh, credits here. Uh, so you can subscribe to Life of the School on iTunes, SoundCloud. Google Play, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere you get uh, podcasts. Uh, music is provided by X Magicians. Uh, you can get show notes and other information at lifeoftheschool.org. 
Uh, you can also provide feedback on the website or through Twitter at Life of the School, all one word. So I will talk to everybody in mid-September, uh, and I hope everyone has a great start to the school year.